imagine if you showed up to your wife like, hey, honey, here's a diamond ring. Now I better expect some special favors, you know, the next few nights. Was that a gift? No, it was a manipulation. That's John Rulin, best-selling author of Giftology and world-renowned loyalty expert. You don't earn brownie points for showing up on Valentine's Day. You earn brownie points with a relationship showing up on random Tuesdays with a spa package. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with John Rulin to discuss the best way to get referrals, why it's important to be thoughtful and strategic with radical generosity, and how the simple act of giving a gift can yield a higher return than any form of marketing. So when people push back, they're like, what's the ROI? I'm like, it's not ROI, it's ROR, it's return on relationship. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. John Rulin is the founder and CEO of the Giftology Group and author of the best-selling book, Giftology, the art and science of using gifts to cut through the noise, increase referrals, and strengthen retention. Today, John is a renowned gifting and loyalty expert, but he didn't always plan on a career in the gifting industry. I'm a farm kid, grew up milking goats, uh, one of six kids. We had 47 acres in a town of 417 people uh, in the middle of Nowheresville, Ohio, about an hour outside of Canton, if you're familiar with like the football of fame. So yeah, I, I grew up uh, milking goats, uh, picking beans, baling hay. We heated our house with wood. It was like a Davy Crockett kind of like Daniel Boone, like... I, I grew up very lower middle income. My mom could make $5 go further than most people made 500. Like she was a thrift shopper and a garage sale person. Like we, you know, with six kids, my parents were probably making, you know, 25 grand a year. I got free lunches at school if that puts it into context. So yeah, definitely not, uh, no silver spoon or no, uh, no access to country clubs growing up. Now, if we, if we fast forward, so from what I've read, you were selling some of the largest deals when you got to Cutco, like in Cutco history. And if, if I'm not mistaken, like I want to even clarify this with you. This was out of like a one and a half million other reps and distributors. Like I didn't even know they had that many, but like you were at the top of that game. Yeah. So I, I went to, I was going to get out of Dodge. I wanted to go make money and not be poor. And you, you know, when you grow up poor, you think like doctors make money or lawyers make money. And my mom was into health and wellness. So I, I went the, like my mom was shipping in like vitamins from nature sunshine and stuff like early on like she was really into health and wellness even though we were poor she knew health was important and uh, and so i was gonna go be a doctor i was gonna be a do or a chiropractor and uh, my life changed i interned with cutco to pay for med school at 20. i basically was just like i'll commit to doing this for six weeks because i didn't have sales experience i didn't have wealthy friends or family and the knives are like the, the you know cutco is like the rolex of cutlery it's a 300 million dollar company handmade in new york it's like you know, it's not like, hey, oh, I can buy a set for, you know, $30, like a full Cutco kitchen is 12 grand. So when I interned with them, I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to sell one knife. But my life really kind of shifted and changed because I pitched it to my girlfriend's dad, who was my fourth appointment. He was an attorney, you know, in this law firm. And he had a great law firm, but he, he was the guy in town that was like always buying things and being generous. He'd find a deal on noodles, give everybody like church the next Sunday, like 300 people, like you know, a year's supply. And I'm like, Paul, it was like 40 grand. Are you nuts? And he just always got the smile on his face. It's just who he was. So when I pitched him the knives, I thought he'd have maybe have mercy on me and buy a set for himself. He bought a set for himself, his three daughters that weren't even married. And then I pitched him again, thinking he's always giving things away. Maybe he'll buy pocket knives because all of his clients are men. They're like million to billion dollar companies, privately owned, you know, insurance companies, financial advisor firms, home builders, lumber yards, and they all like hunting and fishing. And I pitched him a hundred pocket knives. Now these are hundred dollar pocket knives. So it's not like, Hey, Paul, like spend 50 bucks with me total. It's like, this is a thousands of dollars kind of proposition. I'm sweating bullets. And he's got the smile on his face. He's probably 60 at the time. And he said, John, I don't want to order hundred pocket knives, but I do, I would be interested in hundred pairing knives. I'm like, Paul, what do you want? You want to give a bunch of dudes, CEOs of companies, like a kitchen tool. I'm like, why? That doesn't even make sense. And he said, John, in 40 years in business, the reason I have more referrals, deal flow, access, is I found out one simple truth. And that was if you take care of the family in business, everything else seems to take care of itself. 
So for me, I realized it really wasn't about the stupid knives. Although to this day, like we'll sell millions of dollars of knives, not, not because of the knife. The knife is a delivery vehicle for an emotion. I started to realize that Paul was a relationship builder, a relationship master. And so I started to go not pitch knives. I, the reason I, we landed the biggest deals in the world is I started to get referred to other business owners. So I would find a CEO of like a $200 million insurance company I'd want to get a meeting with. I'd send them some knives, little handwritten notes that carve out some time for me, promise to be worth your time. And uh, I'd get the meeting, go in, pitch him. And he, like when I walked in, I'm wearing like the one suit I have. I'm green as can be. I'm 21 years old and walks the CEO and like the, you know, it's like out of a movie, like the mahogany boardroom, like old leather. And uh, he's like, are you the John Rule that sent me the knives? I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, man, I thought you'd be like some seasoned sales executive in their 50s. He's like, are you here to sell me knives? And I said, no, sir, I'm here to help you and your thousand sales reps do exactly what I did to you, to your top 10,000 relationships. So I walked out of there with a PO for a thousand knife sets. So most people would sell one knife set to one homeowner. I was going in and using what we now call giftology, but really it was gratitude, generosity as a strategic way to build relationships. And because of that, we were really showing people how to get ROI. Like we had to have clients invest $10,000 and get back a million dollars. And, you know, most of the time with Facebook ads or whatever else, like you get a three X, you're doing like a dance. And we were showing people how to use this new way of really marketing to build relationships. And so by the time I was a senior in college, Cutco has worked with over 70 years, that 1.5 million number is probably pushing 2 million at this point. And we became their number one distributor in the history of the company. Because we really were like using their product in a whole new system of how to build relationships. So we started to get referred to pro sports teams, and all these other people, but it wasn't about the stupid knives. It's still not about the dumb knives. It's about how do you make connections with people and how do you stay top of mind and how do you include all the different things that we teach in our system? The knives, they plug and play so well to it. So to this day, it's one of our top, uh, even in 2020, it was one of our top gifts. So I, I know you say like the overall goal of giftology is just to make you know, make people feel special and acknowledged by gifting them what you call practical luxuries. How do you define that? Guys are the worst at this. Like guys think about like giving their wife a gift, you know, the day before, like anniversary or birthday, like linear, check the box. But most people aren't thinking very strategically, like whether you're a lawyer or a CEO, like we think like, I like bourbon, I'm going to give bourbon. I like golf. Let's take people golfing. I like steaks. Let's take people off for steaks. Like we're very like, we give what we like to receive. And that's why like, if, if you've read the book, the five love languages, we tend to marry our opposites. Like there's five different types. And Gary Chapman, who wrote the book is a mentor of mine. And most people tend to give love the way they like to receive it. And then love is a weird word to use in business, but we do talk about like loving our clients or, or we want to build a relationship. Like at the end of the day, all businesses rise and fall in that relationship. So the reason we use practical luxury is the practical part is you don't need another freaking paperweight. You don't need another bottle of wine. You don't need another Amazon gift card. Like, like Michael Mogill and most of the people that are listening to this podcast can afford what they want. If you like bourbon, you go buy bourbon. If you like a jacket, you go buy a jacket. So if you find something that you can give to somebody that they'll actually use that they don't already have 10 of, like people are like, oh, I want to send Bose headphones. I'm like, that was cool 30 years ago. I want to send an iPad. I already have, I have five iPads that are unused in a box at home because people think, oh, I saw somebody give an iPad. Let's do that. I saw somebody give this cool widget or this cool jacket. They don't want to really wear your stupid cutter and buck jacket. Like, so practical is the usability side. Most people would never go spend 12 grand or even, you know, like one knife might be $200. Most people have the set that they got for their wedding of knives at Bed Bath & Beyond or Nordstrom or Williams-Sonoma. So if you send somebody a $200 knife that's engraved with their name and their family name on it, the likelihood of them actually using it is the practical side. The luxury side is most people, when they do a gift, it's like, hey, what can you afford on a watch? They're like, oh, I don't know, my budget's 500 bucks. So you get all excited and you're like, hey, I'm gonna send Seiko watches to all my clients or Apple watches. Meanwhile, most of your clients, what do they have on their wrist? They have a Rolex or a Breitling or a Paddock or whatever. So you spent $500 thinking, ah, oh, I'm going to give this great gift. I'm generous. But what you really did is spent $500 to look embarrassing, to give them guilt because the person gets it and it's like, oh, this is $500, but I'm not taking the Rolex off my wrist to put on your Seiko or your Apple watch. So the luxury part is if you're not willing to do best in class on a watch, you don't have to send a Rolex, 
why don't you go give a knife or give a, like we do these crazy, they're called artifact mugs, thousand dollar mugs. You send it to somebody, people a thousand dollars. I'm like, I've had billionaires cry and say it's more valuable than their $50,000 watch. Why? Because of the personalization. It tells somebody's legacy and life story. So unless you're willing to go best in class in a category and make it nicer than what the person already has, then they're not going to use it. They're going to re-gift it. They're going to put it in a shelf. They're going to tell you thank you because they have gift guilt. Nobody ever says, I, I thought less of you as a human when I got your Seiko watch or when I got your bottle of bourbon and my dad's actually an alcoholic. But that's what goes through their head. And so people, and I see lawyers are some of the worst at this. That's the reason that Paul was so good at it, was he was a lawyer that had empathy. And he could put himself in other people's shoes and say, the gift isn't about me. I want to make the gift about the other person. And that works, let's, you know, whether it's your spouse like if you buy your wife a four-wheeler and she hates the outdoors was the gift for, you know, for Mother's Day. It wasn't a gift for her. It was a gift for you. And in business, we do the same thing. We send steaks because we like steak. We send these jackets because I like the jacket. I send headphones because I like technology. The gift isn't about you. A gift by its very nature, if you want it to move somebody's heart, better be about the other freaking person. And so it better be about their inner circle, their assistant and their team and their wife and their kids and their pets. That's the inner circle. So the core of what we teach, people are like, oh, my gosh, like there's a whole science and an art to this. I'm like, yeah, like most people don't realize they're actually spending money to have a negative consequence with their most viable relationships. Like you're spending money to basically tell somebody that that they don't matter or you don't know them that well. Not a really good investment in business today. Many CEOs believe the act of giving a gift sounds nice or may even be sentimental, but the question many ask is, what is the return on investment, or ROI, that they can expect from it? I asked John to elaborate on the business case for thoughtful giving. I just got off uh, Vaynerchuk's podcast, and we talked specifically about this. Most people's long game is days, not decades. And yet, if you look at most law firms, like they're building long-term, multi-decade relationships with these people. But they're not treating them as if this is going to be a 10-year, a 20-year, a 30-year. They're making the investment oftentimes saying, what have I got from that person lately? If I haven't got a referral from them lately, I'm not sending them a gift. And I'm like, you have it backwards. If you love on people and inspire them, they'll go refer deals. And so here's a great example. I, I went to a mastermind. You go to masterminds and different things like, you know, to go hang out with people. And one of the guys I meet is uh, the CEO founder of one of the top, if not the largest financial advising coaching companies at the highest level. This guy's named John Bowen. It's called CEG. used to own a private equity company. Like he's played in that world really, really well, very white collar. And so I, I go into my pitch. I own this gifting agency. We help you outsource all of your gifts. We send love bombs. We drive referrals. We, in some cases, anywhere from a 10 to a thousand X ROI. And his response was, oh, that's cute. Oh, you own a gifting company. And you could tell like, immediately he's like writing me off and he's like, Sean, we do gifts. Yeah. We do some swag. We do some baskets, Christmas, whatever. Like probably not for me, my industry, I'm taking care of seven figure advisors, guys that are making seven figures or more, probably not a fit for me. So I'm like, okay, farm kid chip on my shoulder. Like, so we leave the event. I spent probably an hour with this guy. So I start sending him gifts, gifts for his wife. Um, and I, and, I had my team do the research, found out his wife's name was Jan, started sending some knives. Hey, thanks for carving out the time. Now, these, this is not cheap knives. These are like three to $500 gifts. So if I took him out to dinner, what it would cost, and, you know, found out his wife's you know, name and put her initials on a leather bag and some other things. Didn't ask for anything. Six months go by. I had his number saved. I get a phone call from John. Pick it up. Hey, John, what's going on? And he's like, uh, John's John Bowen. And uh, he's like, I met you at this event, you know, six months ago, you started sending these gifts. I thought they were cool, but I was like, whatever. Five minutes later, I forgot about it. And then three months in, my wife, Jan, we're going to bed and she brings up your name. Hey, have you done anything with John Rulin lately? He's like, I thought that was kind of weird. It's kind of an anomaly. And then a week later, she asks again for bed. Hey, have you done lunch with John? And he's like, John, I feel like I'm sleeping with your sales rep. Like, this is insane. He's like, do you really think this would work in financial services? I said, if you follow the recipe, it will. And so we walked through like what it would be for his top about 200 advisors, all seven figure earners. He's having this event for the fifth year outside of San Francisco. And uh, he fights me the whole time. I don't know the wives names because 99% of these dudes are, are married white dudes. I don't know wives names. I'm like, if you don't get the wives names, the deal's off. He's like, you're not going to take my money. I'm like, no, unless you get the wives names, the deal's off. 
He's like, it's going to take a lot of time. So assistants tracking down people's wives' names and whatever else. He's like, can't we just give the gifts at the event? I'm like, nope, you got to do this this way. Fights the recipe the whole time. I'm like, either do it well or don't do it at all. So we go through the whole dog and pony show. We send out these gifts. It was knives, a couple hundred dollars per person uh, just as a taste because he didn't want to commit to thousands of dollars right out the gate. I'm like, that's fine. Spend two, three hundred bucks each. And so we send him out. He has the event. Afterwards, I... Against my recommendation, he has this survey of an assessment. And at the end, it talks about asking for referrals. Like, who do you know that would be a good fit for this coaching? That basically asking for peers. And he's like, John, I triple checked the numbers. Our referrals in the last five years have been about the same. They went up 107%. And the only thing we did different were your stupid gifts. And I laughed. I said, you're gonna probably get buy a few more gifts, aren't you? And he's like, I sure as hell am. Why did it work? Well, it worked because of the recipe. But a lot of people send stuff, you know, like Amazon can send stuff really efficiently. So people fight me all the time. Like, why would I do the knives? Why would I do this? How I, that's, it seems expensive. And at the same time, they'll go take their clients out to Morton's and drop $500 a person and buy expensive champagne and wine, or whatever else. And it's most people will do their biz dev, their relationship building, especially guys, very experiential, very like dinner, golf, cigars, whatever else. Gifting is an area where most people, it's like a, I'll check the box at Christmas. And if you do it really well, most people think they're a seven out of 10 on gifting and really they're a negative three. And so the 107% referrals, which by the way, a referral to him was worth 25 to 50 grand a year and a typical client stayed for five years. So what's that worth to him? It's worth anywhere from a hundred to $200,000 for one referral. And they went up 107%. So when people push back, they're like, what's the ROI? I'm like, it's not ROI, it's ROR. It's return on relationship. If you want to get 3x return on Facebook ads, that's fine. But if you looked at your overall marketing budget and relationship and biz dev and you country clubs and sporting events and whatever else, you don't have to take all of that money and invest it in Gethology. But imagine if you took 20% of it and started investing in your relationships this way and you increased your referrals, not by 107%. That's not, like, sometimes it'll be higher than that, but even 10%. Most advisors, most you know, wealth managers, most CPAs, most you know, law firms, like a referral is gold. You might have that client for 20 years. Most of the people that are listening to this podcast probably don't have an issue with retention, but most of them suck at getting referrals. And the reason is, is because they don't have an intentional strategy about how they're showing up for their relationships. They're doing the same thing as all of their competitors, dinners, golf, rounds of golf, all that stupid stuff. And it's fine, it's, but it's table stakes. It's like only taking care of your wife on Valentine's Day and her birthday and, and, and anniversary. You don't earn brownie points for showing up on Valentine's Day. You should earn brownie points with a relationship showing up on random Tuesdays with a spa package. If you want to build relationships, you have to be different than your competitors. And gifting is the one that people are like, oh, that seems weird, it seems woo-woo. And I'm like, great. If everybody was a great gift giver, it'd just be marketing noise. But because most people suck at it and are uncomfortable with it, they avoid it. And I'm like, that's awesome. We'll work with the 2% of people that get it and will crush all of their competitors because nobody is doing this. Now, I know when it comes to gift giving, you argue that not every gift needs to create a return for it to be a successful investment, if you could elaborate on that. Well, I mean, I, mean, I think that um, most people want to start with prospects, and that's the last person you should be appreciating. Most people get excited about taking care of their cold market, their whales, and that's fine. I like whale hunting as much as anybody. Like, I love you know, getting the phone call from a Lewis Howes or a, you know, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. But what I found is that most people where they should be starting is with their employees. If you want your employees to deliver Ritz-Carlton service and they've never stayed at the Ritz-Carlton, how's that working out for you? Like it doesn't. Most people will treat their clients at, or their prospects at a Ritz-Carlton level and then the employees get the Motel 6. So in our opinion, if you want loyalty and engagement with your team, which most people like recruiting good talent and having good people that are engaged is an important thing. You know, this with a fast growing company, you need people that are not just bought into the dollar sign, they're bought into the mission, they're bought into you and they realize that you care about them. So there are times where like, what's the ROI or the return on relationship to have engaged employees? I mean, it's worth a lot of money. How much is it worth? I don't know. But what we found is that like, we're doing things for our team. We started like seven years ago doing something, we realized that all of our employees, are, they work remotely. There are a lot of stay-at-home moms, college educated, they have kids, husbands, whatever else. We started to pay for house cleaning. 
cost us $2,500 an employee per year. People are like, how do you afford that? Like when I spoke at Google, they're like, oh my gosh, how could you afford $2,500 a person a year? I'm like, when you hire somebody at Google, you'll pay an engineer, you know, $225,000 to $235,000 or $225,000, $250,000, maybe an admin, you're paying $65,000 to $75,000. That's a $10,000 delta that when you hire and add overhead and labor, you don't even think two rips about it. 10 grand per employee. Imagine if you, instead of just saying, hey, how can I get the most out of the employee and how can I like cut costs? Like nobody brags about their 401k and it costs us business owners a crap ton of money. You want to know what they do brag to their family and friends about? House cleaning every other week. Why? Because it gives them time with their family back. It gives them time with their kids back. It gives them time to have a hobby. And so thinking strategically about how you're building relationships, when we take people through an assessment, we look at all of their relationships, their suppliers, like a lot of businesses don't have a business without suppliers. Like I, I send nicer gifts to Cutco, the knife company I buy millions of dollars from, than most people send their best clients. Why? Because I need them. I need my vendors. And most people treat their vendors like crap. And then they wonder why nobody wants to run through walls for them. Well, you treat them like a-hole. You treat them like, a, like dirt. And then you want a favor from them. That's not how relationships work. So during the assessment, we, we go around and say, hey, your employees, what's the value of them? What's it cost to recruit a new person? What's it cost when you're growing and you need that person or you lose that person and they had the relationship with that firm that you're going or that company, that Fortune 500 company. So for me, it's not always just a put a dollar in and get $20 back out because it's you can't always tell. But we all know we're emotional beings. We all know that people will leave a company, not because of pay. It's like pay is typically four or five. It's usually because they don't like number one or two is they don't feel respected or appreciated. We're all just human beings. I don't care if you work at Google, you work at UBS, you work at Podunk Little Law Firm, you work at like, we're all just humans. And I think in 2020, we've realized more of our humanity. Gary and I talked about that, like the empathy of realizing like, oh, that person has a spouse. That, that person's now homeschooling kids at home or they have dogs or they have like their mom's sick. Like, I think the more that we can take a step back and realize like if we treat human beings like human beings and we make investments in them and show them that we actually, it's not like lip service that we care. We actually are putting, willing to, as leaders to put our money where our mouth is. I don't necessarily have to pay my employees more than anybody else. I'm being strategic about how I'm investing in them. And I can actually, like, I don't have recruiting costs because my employees recruit all their family and friends. There's a line wanting to work at Giftology because they've heard about unlimited babysitter. We started realizing a lot of our employees were stressed out from the pandemic and were like, I'm buying like these nice IntelliBed $5,000 mattresses. What if I started sending them to my employees and saying, hey, we want you and your spouse to have a great night's rest. We know it's stressful. People are like, five grand. I'm like, once again, what's it cost you for health insurance per employee? Oh, 20 grand an employee. I'm like, do they brag about it? No, it's table stakes. So thinking strategically about what you're doing, it's not spending more money than your competitor. As a, as a privately owned company, I can't outspend my publicly traded competitors, but we dominate them with these sorts of things because of how we're showing up for people and how we're taking care of them. We're being more strategic as an entrepreneur with our dollars and not being flippant about it. And that it doesn't always work. There are times when I send crazy gifts to people and it doesn't pan out, but I only need a few to work out to create these oak trees. And whether that's on the employee side or the client side, that's where people are like, oh, I, I, need, I need an immediate return. And I'm like, that sometimes happens, but I'm not going to promise that because you're dealing with human beings. And if you're going to give and then immediately ask for something, that wasn't a gift. Imagine if you showed up to your wife like, hey, honey, here's a diamond ring. Now I better expect some special favors, you know, the next few nights. Was that a gift? No, it was a manipulation. But we do that in business. And we call it gifting or marketing. That's not gifting or marketing. That's a bait and switch. It doesn't work. And so we, we forget sometimes on these spreadsheets of like, like how to engage people differently and how to treat them as a human being. Simple concept, but we all get blind to it. John argues that one raving fan is worth more than 100 satisfied customers and that law firm owners should constantly be looking for ways to build loyalty with their most valued clients and referral sources. I asked him to share some of the best methods for building relationships and getting referrals. My view is that you should be getting a lot of referrals without asking. We built a course around it, referralswithoutasking.com. You can go watch the video series talking about it. Like referrals should be something that naturally happen. We really, what we talk about is active loyalty versus passive loyalty. Most people think if they retain a client, that's loyalty. And I'm like, we've all had employees that have stuck around and they were loyal 
and we actually wish they would have left. Like they're, they're actively disengaged. They're staying, but a loyal employee or a loyal client or a loyal center of influence or referral partner is somebody that doesn't just say, if somebody asks them, hey, what law firm do you use? When you have an actively loyal relationship, they're going out of their way at dinners and golf outings, whatever else, and looking for an opportunity to bring your name up. Even if it's a little bit awkward or uncomfortable. Like think about the, like when we all have actively loyal relationships, but most people have like one or two. They have one or two people that are, they love them and they're bought in. And those are the people that send lots of deal flow and lots of referrals because they're fully bought in, but their like loyalty is not all equal. Actively loyal relationships are going and advocating on, on behalf of you without you even asking. And what we've shown, the way that we've landed the biggest stages in the world on speaking, the biggest clients in the world on gifting, is I've been able to love on people sometimes for seven years before they started sending deal flow. Most people send one or two gifts to only the people that are referring. And what they don't realize is that within their warm market, they're leaving money on the table. And if they would show up for people, everybody says they're in a relationship building business, even if you sell toilet paper. But lawyers, everybody would say trust and relationship. It's, I mean, a lawyer is handling some of the most intimate things you could possibly handle for somebody. And yet most of the time, when do we give gifts? When a deal's done, when a referral's given, what did you just turn that relationship into? A tit for tat, a transactional relationship. Is that what you want? No, but subconsciously you're, you're like, somebody sends you a million dollar lead or a quarter million dollar referral and it closes and you think, oh, I'm generous. I'm gonna, send a, I'm gonna send a case of Opus One. Like, hey, it's a couple grand. But in their head, they're thinking, wow, man, that guy just made a million dollars I would have thought maybe he would have sent something more because now he's equating it. He's weighing it and it doesn't feel equal. Whereas if you just sent the case of Opus One as a, hey, I just, I just appreciate who you are as a person. I just appreciate the relationship, not tied to a deal or not tied to a referral. The other person, I don't like wine, by the way, as a gift, because in marketing, you should be measuring cost per impression. And you send you know, six or 12 bottles of wine, you're getting six or 12 impressions. I'd rather send something that's getting 6,000 or 12,000 thoughts versus six or 12. That's how you can afford to spend more and actually get more impact over the long haul and your cost per impression goes down significantly. But even something like wine, a gift that's on our top 10 do not give list, if it showed up as a just because of the relationship versus showing up as a transactional tit for tat. And so that's where when we lay out a plan, we, we call it a relationship plan and do the assessment, we tell people you gotta be doing gifts at planned randomness. You're sending it out to them, not because it's renewal time, not because they just signed a million dollar case with you or whatever else. You're sending it just because. We'll literally send 10,000 knife sets out and every single person feels like they're the only ones that received it. Why? Because the timing. We didn't tie it to a deal, an anniversary, a birthday, Christmas. You send a love bomb or a gift out of the blue to people and they're like, I didn't give a referral. I didn't do a deal. Oh my gosh, Michael was just thinking about me? You know, Steve was just thinking about like it changes all of a sudden now that person because we, we all have built into us in our DNA reciprocity. When somebody shows up for us over and over and over again, guess what we want to do? We want to we want to do something back for them. That's how God's wires, whether you're a person of faith or not, like I'm not getting like woo woo or transcendental or anything like when you make a deposit into somebody consistently as a human nature, we want to do something nice back. And so when I talk about referrals without asking. The whole concept is how do I be proactive and show up for people for no other reason than a just because. And if you do that consistently, all of a sudden, like you, the tsunami starts to build and people start like looking out for you to look for opportunities on the golf course to send you deals to the point where you'll have like, we literally have clients that are like, I can't take any more referrals. I have to like upgrade the level of client I can accept because when, when I have all these people out there, when all of your clients are salespeople for you, and I've had this happen. Like I can't take any more direct emails or more phone calls. It sounds weird to say I have too many referrals, but and I'm sure you've had this where you're like, I can't take another phone call. I can't take another. And it feels weird or awkward to turn somebody down on a referral, but it's because you have so many people out there advocating that you have to like have other people start taking the calls. That's a good day. But most people never get there because they're not being proactive and they don't have a plan and they're not doing the planned randomness. 
So with a lot of the things that you're discussing, and I, and I imagine there's people listening that, you know, it sounds amazing to them, but this is really, it's, it's almost like a shift in mindset of, of how you do business and, and how we approach both our customers, our team members, and so on. Why is this such a, such a difficult concept for people to get on board with? Well, I think that it feels very nebulous. I think guys, the industries we work a lot in are, you know, are male dominated. Women, I think in general, understand empathy better. They're better with relationship IQ. They're better, like, they're just better, in some cases, human beings, because they're able to connect. They understand that, like, you don't give a gift and then ask for something that feels like cheap and icky and gross. Guys wouldn't talk about it. Guys are like, hey, I want to, like, kill this and do this and whatever else. So I think that there's this weirdness of, in business, it's a battle. It's a war. And the idea of using love and kindness and empathy and generosity feels weak. But if you look at Gary, you know, Vaynerchuk's a great example. You look at Lewis Howes, you look at Southwest Airlines, Starbucks, the companies that are dominating right now are the companies that lead with their heart on the sleeve. They show up for people. They do things without asking for anything in return. And there's nothing wrong with profit. Like I want to be radically profitable so I can continue to invest in other companies and build out my platform. And profit's not a bad word. What I think is the challenge is that most people don't have an example. Most people are sheep. And so they say, you know, my marketing budget needs to include conferences and sponsorships and Facebook ads. And, you know, if we do gifts, it's we're going to order a bunch of crap from China with our logo on it. Or there's no, I think the challenge is, is that it felt weak. It felt awkward. It felt uncomfortable. And if you're going to do this well, like you could end up, let's say you had a hundred thousand dollar marketing budget and you're going to carve off 20%. Like if I go spend 20 grand on knives and it doesn't work, I'm going to feel like an idiot. I'm going to feel weird. I'm going to feel like I got taken advantage of, or I'm like, what if people don't like me? Or what if people think it's weird? So there's all of these things, I think, because we're sheep. That's why people tend to give Apple because they see everybody else giving Apple products. That's why I'd say it's one of our 10 gifts not to give. Um, so I think that there's this uncomfortableness. And because it's sometimes difficult with relationships to say, what caused that referral? What caused that loyalty? What caused that engagement? It's not, you can't be an a-hole and then give great gifts and think that everything's going to be okay. You need to be a giver. If, like This is a heart set and a mindset. In fact, I tell people all the time, like, unless you're willing to commit to this for three years, don't do it. Because if you show up as like daddy Warbucks on this gift and then go back to being Emmys or Scrooge, you're going to look like a douchebag. You're going to actually spend money to have people be like, oh, that was just a tactic. That's not who he is. That's not who she is. And so there's no question that if you are going to play the long game in decades, then this, this could work for you because you're going to, year in and year out, you're going to make deposits in your relationships. But if you're just looking for like the cut the corner and do the cool thing and then move on to the next shiny object, this isn't going to work out real well for you because you're going to make these deposits in people. And then you're going to go back to being a dick that doesn't work. And so like I tell people all the time, like this is not like your heart set, your mindset, if you're a giver, if you're somebody who likes to build relationships, if you're somebody who's going to sell the company in a year, then maybe it's not for you. But if you're going to have your firm, you know, for another 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and even after you leave the firm, you're going to be involved in the community and give back and, and understand that, like, you want people on boards talking about well about you, then making these sort of deposits in people and playing the true long game could actually work. But I think that the, the challenge is that nobody has ever challenged people to say, you need to be more strategic with your thoughtfulness, you need to be more strategic with your generosity, you need to be more like there is a way uh, to be thoughtful and strategic at the same time and make deposits in people and over time reap those rewards. You know, like the book Giftology really is the only book I know of in the entire world that's teaching people how to do this in our agency. Like if you want to go buy a bunch of promotional products, you know, a million T-shirts, like we're not the company to talk to. There's a lot of companies that do that. That's not Giftology. That's a promotional product. We're the only agency that I know of that if somebody wants to think strategically about how to make these deposits in people and how to be strategic with it and how to be thoughtful and how to scale it and outsource it, we're the only ones that I know of on the planet that do that. And so because of that, I think most people have never been exposed to this line of thinking. And if nothing else, I mean, just even for sheer congruency, I, I know that every business these days claims to be best in class or world class, or at least they claim that their product or services, but their gifts don't seem to be. And, and, and you argue that if you're claiming to be the best, you know, you should apply that same attention to your gift giving. Yeah. Well, imagine if you're like, imagine if you have like this beautiful firm in this beautiful building 
And then you like pull up in like this beat up, you know, 20 year old like Kia. It's weird. It'd be like going to, you know, this beautiful restaurant and somebody's like serving $80 steaks. And then they go to the wine cellar and say, yeah, we have, all we have is two buck Chuck from Trader Joe's. Like you need to be congruent with your messaging. You need to be congruent with, if you play at this level, which, you know, you're a level 10 on, you know, like your law services and, and how you operate, like all of those things. So now, like if you send something to somebody in your, you know, a Ritz Carlton here and then a Motel 6 level on your gifts, you're basically, it confuses people. It makes people feel like, oh, maybe he says he's world-class, but that's like peanut brittle or brownies or chocolate bar for, you know, an Amazon gift card or Starbucks card. Like, are you, really? Uh, and so you, the last thing you want to do with your messaging is spend money to confuse your relationships or to put doubt. Like credibility is a big deal. Um, and we were talking about this before we went live about like the power of a book or the power of a podcast, like credibility with all of this noise and everybody's saying things. And so like people look and say, yeah, he says that or she says that or that brand says that. Like, let's go a little bit lower and say, like, do they follow through on their brand promise? Do they follow through on what they say they are? And nobody's perfect at it. Like, there are times when I screw up a gift or our team does or, you know, like we do something that's not congruent. But if you're going to consistently show up for people and do things, it needs to be congruent with whatever you're saying. And if you're best in class and world class, then every touch point that goes out, like it's a physical representation of whether or not you really are who you say you are. And in business, I think in 2021, that's paramount because not only can it affect that person, but now with social media and all these other things, like it can spread like wildfire without you even realizing it. like somebody is pissed off or somebody gets something like, really? Like you sent me a koozie with your logo on it. Like, are you now people are posting on it and making fun of it. And things can spread so much faster in 2021, both good and bad. And, and so to me, it's better to do nothing at all than to do something half-baked. And I think there's traditions in law firms like, oh, it's Christmas. We send a gift. We don't allow our clients to send gifts at Christmas. Why? We want to be different than what everybody else is doing. We want to help them invest dollars and get that 10x and 1,000x ROI on the back end and return on relationships. And so being congruent with that is, is paramount. And I know you talk about the actual the gifts themselves, that it's important that the gifts are unique practical, visible, lasting, universal. I hope, I hope I got everything. There's probably, maybe, maybe there's even more things, but why, why do they have to be all of those things? Why do they have to hit each point? Well, I think that uh, in America or North America or really any like first world country, like we don't need more stuff. You think about it, like your house, you know, like at least for, for me and my, my guess is most people, like there's a box that most people have that's like the goodwill box like clothes and jackets and trinkets and whatever else. Like most people like have too much stuff. We're getting like, we're donating it, we're gifting it, whatever. And so unless you're going to take, I, I don't even like calling them gifts anymore. I call them artifacts. Like no, most people don't need more crap, more stuff. Like it's it, now like you're putting the obligation on that other person to be like, Oh my gosh, I got to say thank you. Maybe write a thank you note. And now like I have to feel guilty because I'm going to regift it or give it to goodwill. So the reason it's so important to be unique, to be useful, to include the family, to be best in class, is it's super hard when you're dealing with affluent people to give them something that they're actually going to do, keep and honor and like. And so to give something to somebody now, if you do, I mean, that's the reason that like to this day that the silly knives are one of our most popular gifts is I, if I can get something on somebody's kitchen countertop, the hub of their house where they break bread with their family and friends and whatever else, if I can get something on that countertop that they see every single day and maybe use two to three times a day for the next decade, that's like 3,600 to 10,000 impressions. Why? Because I was able to get something on the, some of the most valuable real estate on the planet is somebody's kitchen countertop. Like most people's countertops, they want them to be clean and only a handful of things, maybe a Vitamix, you know, maybe a really nice knife set, maybe whatever. But so like, if you can own that spot, now, like subconsciously and consciously, top of mind awareness, the person who's liked, trusted, and top of mind wins the deal and wins the referral, hands down. Most people don't have a plan on how to be top of mind. And so when we walk people through the strategy, they're like, John, why all of these questions? Why, why the knives or why the $1,000 mug or why the whatever? I'm like, because it's so hard with affluent people to get something that's going to stick. I don't want to just get you a thank you note. I want to get you a deal three years from now. I want to get you your largest case. I want to get you 10 referrals over the next 10 years. And that only happens 
if you're really strategic and really thoughtful and you think about the engraving and the handwritten note and all the little things that make that thing land, you just want to send stuff like go to Amazon. Like they're really efficient at sending boxes of crap. And some of it's valuable and nice and whatever else, but like an artifact is something that you value, that you're like, oh my gosh, this was made for me. Like we did a gift for Tony Robbins for a client recently. And uh, he's like, John, I did this partnership. I want to send a gift. And I said, uh, great, we're going to do like, we're going to do this like $6,000 knife set. He's like six grand for a knife set. And he knew what Cutco was. He knew the knives. He's like, really? I'm like, not about stupid knives. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a month researching and we're going to get all of his quotes over 40 years that he put out into the world. And we're going to engrave those 64 pieces of wisdom on all of the blades. And then you're going to make a video talking about, as I know, your Tony's impacted your life. And you're going to speak into Tony and, and his wife and talk about what their, their life legacy has meant to you. And you're going to talk about that this, these set of tools that you, your hope is that they'll break bread with these and pass them down to future generations of Robins. And those kids and grandkids will be reminded of the legacy that you put into existence. Now, now that went into like a $2,500 walnut wood and cast iron strong box with a video screen built in. So when they opened it, it was our client speaking to Tony and, and his wife. That, you know, eight grand, not a cheap date. Wasn't about the stupid knives. It was unique. It was classy. It was universal. It was, Tony could go buy 10,000 knife sets. It was the messaging. It was the thoughtfulness. It was the, the extra energy and time to go pull off those quotes to make it an heirloom, to make it an artifact of the relationship. That's what made it like, even if Tony had the nicest knife set on the planet that was like diamond encrusted, you know, that was a hundred grand. That is just a thing. This is an artifact. It ties into his legacy. It ties into what he values. And so that's where people are like, oh, I did the giftology thing and it didn't work. I do gifts, whatever. And I'm like, did you follow the recipe? And they're like, well, I kind of did giftology-ish. I'm like, imagine baking bread and you bake it 10,000 times and you don't put yeast in any of the times. I don't care if you baked it 10,000, 100,000, a million times. If you bake bread and don't put yeast in, you don't get bread. And if you try to be thoughtful and use giftology, but you forget one ingredient, it's going to land radically different. You're not going to have the uniqueness. You're not going to have the referrals. You're not going to have the deal flow. So all of those little things, people are like, John, like you're a little obsessive with the handwritten notes and the engraving and all these things. And I'm like, I'm obsessive because to build a relationship with an affluent person and inspire them to go send deal flow your way or to be loyal or to be whatever is really difficult. And if you do it well and follow the recipe, all the little things, whether you do it on your own or you outsource it to an agency like ours, either way, the same recipe has to be followed because we're all human beings and there's a psychology, there's a science to it as well as an art to it. And if you forget one thing, just don't expect to get the thousand X ROI on the back end. It's just not going to happen. John believes that giftology isn't about stepping into the spotlight yourself, but rather it's about shining the light on someone else. In fact, he himself learned this the hard way. The long and short of it is I almost lost the business back in 2007, 2008. I'd invested in too many things and had an employee that was stealing from me. And, and when the, the market melted down, all the real estate and other things I had done, like it just got destroyed and I almost lost the business. So there's about 18 months there. My business partner bought half the business, didn't take a draw for two years. And my, my now wife at the time, it was my girlfriend, had moved, quit her job, went on a mission trip to Nicaragua and moved to Ohio. She got the worst side of being with an entrepreneur that you could ever get. Like I was barely keeping my lips above water. I said, I'm not going bankrupt. I'm going to fight my way through this and figure it out. And so when I decided to propose, I want it to be 10 times better than anything that I've ever done for a client. So she could never say, yeah, you love me, but really you love your business. And really you love your clients more than me. Because I, I think that there's, as entrepreneurs, we struggle with the business being our mistress and the business being our focus versus our family. And for me, like I've always wanted to be like family first, then business. And there's nothing wrong with being a great entrepreneur, but I wanted the priorities to be in order. So I decided I, I didn't have money um, because I had, like was literally trying not to go bankrupt. And I'm like, what can I create? And I, I basically decided our favorite movie was The Notebook. And I'm like, I'm going to recreate the movie, The Notebook for, for my wife. And I had my brother just graduated from film school. So I get him for free. And I'm going to uh, arrange Continental was the airline at the time. And we were living apart, by the way, we were living, she was living in St. Louis. I'm living in Ohio because we had like, she had gotten a job there. And the relationship was actually kind of rocky because I was a sucky boyfriend. I was just, I just wasn't 
present. And so I had arranged with Continental to be on the airline sitting next to her when she's flying in for Valentine's Day, not expecting an engagement at all. And uh, I had had my brother transform me to look like a 90 year old guy, like the guy from The Notebook. It's an amazing movie. So everything was like great. My, my brother, we did a makeup run the night before and I'm supposed to be flying into St. Louis because I had arranged to be sitting next to her on the plane. And so we'd fly in early. He transformed me into this 95 year old looking dude. Look like I gained like 200 pounds. I had false teeth. You know, I had brute cologne, gold watch, Velcro shoes. Like I look like a 90 year old dude, um, NASCAR jacket. And so the plan was to be on the plane when she's on the plane. And she'd be looking at this notebook that I created for her. And it looked like it got lost in the mail. My brother flew down to deliver it to her. And, you know, at the end of the notebook, it starts talking about like growing old together. Will you love me when I gain hundred pounds, all this kind of stuff. And she'd realized the guy sitting next to her wasn't a 90 year old dude. It was me. And I'd get down on one knee. The ring was hidden like Shawshank Redemption style at 30,000 feet. We'd land our fam, my family, her family would be there in a stretch Hummer limo. They'd driven like 10 hours to be there. And our 200 closest friends were going to be at this restaurant to party and celebrate. That's what was supposed to happen. <laughs> so the morning of, I fly into St. Louis with my brother. He transforms me into this 90-year-looking 90, 90 dude. And uh, he delivers the package to Lindsay when she gets to the airport about 4 o'clock. She's getting ready to – they're starting to do pre-boarding time. I go to get on the plane because I'm an old dude. I'm a pre-boarder. And I go to hand my ticket and I collapse. And Lindsay doesn't recognize me because I'm in disguise. And my brother's like looking at this, like, John wasn't, this isn't part of the plan. Like what's going on? So the, the flight attendant's like shaking me, sir, sir, sir. Like what's, and I'm unconscious. They roll me over blood everywhere. And then uh, another pilot comes off. They like call 911, sees me on the ground, thinks I'm having a heart attack. They pull the defibrillator off the wall and start taking, and then the wig falls off and the glasses and Lindsay realized it's not a nine year old dude, it's me. So she has a meltdown that to build a wall of people around me to, to keep her away. Now, meanwhile, guess who shows up when there's a guy in disguise getting on an airplane? The FBI shows up and is asking questions. They put the paddles on me and it says, shock me. So they hit the button. They shock me. They can't stabilize me. Cut the stuff off. Ambulance shows up. They put me in the ambulance and Lindsay gets into the back of the cop car. They won't let her in I'm with my brother. And she's not even sure if I'm alive. And she finds out from him, the cop, as they're following the ambulance that I was going to propose, and she's not even sure if I'm going to make it. So meanwhile, my brother sends out a text message, parties off, John had a heart attack, He's, we're on our way to ICU. Going to ICU, they run every test under the sun, and the next morning, my, Lindsay is like holding my hand through the night, not sure if I'm going to make it. I wake up, and I'm like, I'm on all these drugs, they pull the breathing machine out, and, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, did I get, did I get engaged? And they're like, no, you almost died. This happened. This happened. They're like, my brother's giving off the list. And Lindsay's like, and I, I start laughing. I think it's the funniest thing in the world. And Lindsay, my girlfriend, is like, that is not funny. Like, there's nothing funny about it at all. Doctor comes in, John, have you changed anything? Like, what's going on? Like, you, you know, like, have you changed anything recently? And I said, uh, yeah, I, I was doing this special diet, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, uh, you had a low blood sugar seizure. And when the machine misread things and you got shocked, you should have died. I'm like, but I didn't. It's like Romeo and Juliet. I think it's the best thing ever. And Lindsay's like, that's the dumbest thing. Like, you're an idiot. Like, that was not funny. It's not like, so fortunately, like six days later, we read the notebook together. I get out of the hospital, fly back. And she says, yes, we get married six months later. And for five years, we fought. Anytime I'd go to a YPO or a CEO event or Google to speak, the dinner before, Somebody would hear about the engagement story and be like, John, you got to tell the story. I'd be like, sure, I'll tell the story. And Lindsay's like, don't tell the story. I hate that story. I tell the story. Everybody loves it. Lindsay and I go up to the hotel room and we fight like cats and dogs. She's like, you're so insensitive. That was the worst day of my life. And I'd be like, you don't appreciate me. I almost died for you. It was like this big sticking point for five years. We started having kids, but like the marriage wasn't great. And uh, one of my mentors is like, John, tell me how's the marriage going? I'm like, it's okay. He's like, well, Tell me what, what's Lindsay like? What is her favorite? Like, what would be her best day ever? And uh, I'm like, oh gosh, for her like birthday, she would like, if I gave her an itinerary six months in advance, like here, where are we going to be at minute two and minute seven? And well, here's what to wear. And it's the worst. And he's like, my mentor's like, so does she like surprises? And when he asked that question, it was like somebody punched me in the nose, the mouth and the gut at the same time. I was like, oh my gosh, she hates surprises. 
And I realized in that moment that I had made the entire engagement experience about what I liked. I love surprises, blindfold me, take me to Africa for a safari. Like I wanted this story to be on Oprah someday and all these other things. And I realized I'd made everything about that, about what I wanted, not about what she wanted. And so I apologize. It's taken literally like, it, there's still a wound there. Now she realizes that like I learned a lesson from it and, and you know, we've worked through it. But what I realized is that in business, we do the exact same thing. When we give a gift, we tend to give it the way that we like to receive it. If we like steak, we take people out for a steak. If we like wine, we send wine. If we like golf, we take people golfing. Like if we give a gift that's in our company colors or on our company anniversary, we do the exact same thing in business. And we wonder why things don't resonate. A gift by its very nature is recipient focused. If I wanted to give my wife a gift, which is what it should have been, an engagement is a gift inviting her into you know relationship with me. I should have made it about what she wanted. She didn't want 200 people. She didn't want a story and video and to be on Oprah. She wanted to start a life together. She wanted to like just be me and her at a dinner. And there's so many times in business, whether it's with our employees, our centers of influence, our clients, whether you're a law firm or whether you're a Fortune 500 company, it doesn't really matter. Like we make everything about us. We shop with our own eyes. We buy with our own eyes. We give the love the way we want to receive it. And when we can flip that and say, what would they really want? our lives and our relationships flourish because we're actually putting them first versus our own ego and our own pride. And that's hard. It's hard even for me. And I've been doing it for 20 years, working that gratitude muscle. But when you can do that, whether it's an engagement or whether it's for your best client, like relationships shift and change when you flip the script. And John, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I kind of view life in some ways as a game. And I want my life to have mattered. And so to me, it's, you know, like leaving my mark um, in that dash between when I was born and when I died. And to me, whatever I do, I want to do it at 110% and go all in or not do it at all. And sometimes I struggle with that. I'm not perfect at it. But, you know, for me, if you're going to gift, gift like it matters. If you're going to be a parent, parent like it matters. If you're going to be a business owner, like be purposeful and, and serve your employees and, and change the game in whatever way you can, but go all in. And, and my mentor early on, I saw him live his life this way, which was giving more than was reasonable, giving more than was necessary. And when you show up and you give more than you need to, and whatever that is, effort, generosity, gifting, love, like good things happen when you do that. And so that, that's what it means for me to be a game changer. I want to give a huge thank you to John Rulin for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when John mentioned that if you claim to be best in class, but send cheap and thoughtless trinkets, you're failing to live up to your promise and that you must be congruent with your messaging, branding, and your gifting. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with John Rulin, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be talking to the co-founder and former president of the Ritz-Carlton, Horst Schultze. Who in this room doesn't know what Coca-Cola is? You all know it. Everybody knows it, obviously. Coca-Cola knows that everybody knows what Coca-Cola is. But they still spend billions of advertising because you have to keep it front of mind. Why wouldn't we keep front of mind the things that will make us the leader in the world, in this industry? That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.